This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Coming up next on Plains FM, the Shetland and Orkney Connection, brought to you by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society. Played by Shetland Band Homebrew, signal 8.30pm the last Monday each month for the Shetland and Orkney Connection, produced by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society and broadcast on Plains FM 96.9, either directly in Canterbury or streaming live globally on broadband, or available for three months after the broadcast via podcast on the website www.plainsfm.org.nz. Hello everyone, welcome to the July edition of the Shetland and Orkney Connection. It's presented by the Canterbury Shetland and Orkney Society and is promoted by Community Radio Plains FM 96.9. The programme is broadcast at 8.30pm on the last Monday of each month and is repeated on Monday two weeks later at noon. It's nice to have you back, Jan, and good to see you, Helen. Over the last week or so, I have been trying to read the Orkney Inga saga and finding it a bit hard going with all the people having Viking names, as my knowledge of Scandinavian word pronunciation is very, very limited. That is why sometimes we make a hash of words on this program. I'm finding the book interesting, though with the amount of fighting that went on, I'm surprised there were any men left. Another thing I was surprised about was the amount of travelling that they did between Scandinavia, Shetland, Orkney, Ireland, the Hebrides and the west coast of Scotland. There was also mention of trips to Rome and the Middle East. Maybe that is where I get my urge to travel from, as I've been to Orkney over 20 times. The next book I want to read is The Shetland Bus. Yes, a great book. Mm. Now, a few bits and pieces from the papers. Fishing boats will be required to demonstrate they have the means to recover an unconscious person from the water, following an investigation into the death of a man from the Copious. Edison Larkast died in 2021 after he fell overboard from the trawler. He was wearing a life jacket, but at the time it was being worn incorrectly. He became unconscious in the water, and although the Copious had man overboard recovery equipment, it was not supplemented by training and equipment necessary for the recovery of an unconscious person. Mm, it still surprised me. Very how, sad, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but it still surprises me how many times you see on TV people on boats and no life jackets. Mm, yeah. And I, we, when I was in Japan, I went on a boat trip down this river and it was all rapids and all that. None of us had life jackets. Oh, gosh. Even you. Yes. And I'm not a very good swimmer. Oh, I bet you were hanging on tightly <laughs> there. <laughs> Never thought a thing about it at the time. But oh, dear. Mm, mm. Yeah. Uh, last week, Princess Anne and Vice Admiral Sir Tim Lawrence visited Lerwick to experience the tall ships races. 
She visited some of the event sites and met sponsors, crew members and organisers. The event was an important occasion for the whole of Shetland and with Princess Anne t- attending, this just added to the significance. With dozens of tall ships berthed in the port, there was no better time to see Lerwick Harbour in all its glory. About 1,300 crew members were welcomed for the crew parade and opening ceremony, followed by several days of festivities. Last Saturday, spectators gathered for the impressive sight of the 37-strong fleet preparing to leave Lerwick to race to Arendal in Norway. What a sight that would have been, seeing Mm. all those ships leaving the Mm. harbour with Mm. their sails Mm. up. Mm. Wow. Most of the boats have returned to Lerwick now, and the revellers complained they were being ripped off by bar prices. A pint of lager costs six pound, and a double measure of Jack Daniels and Mixer, eleven pound. Yeah. Oh, oh, that is extortion. Yeah, isn't it? Good, clever. Yeah, well, I sort of thought maybe it's a good time to give up drinking. So. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing wrong with water. Yeah. yeah. An ancient cemetery dating back thousands of years was discovered at the Saxavord complex in the Shetland Islands, where the UK's first vertical rocket launch is planned to take place later this year. During groundworks at the site, remnants of the cemetery were uncovered, shedding light on the region's enigmatic Bronze Age past. The archaeological findings include pits, large boulders and burnt bones, all pointing towards the existence of a ritual cremation cemetery. Additionally, the presence of the white quartz, often associated with burial tombs and rock artwork, has further substantiated the hypothesis of its ceremonial nature. Experts estimate that the cemetery dates back to the early Bronze Age, approximately from 2200 to 1800 BC. Mm, wow. A while ago. Mm. Fascinating. Mm. Mm. Where has the income from the cruise industry gone? And what became of the Orkney Island Council's cap of 4,500 passengers per day? These are the questions raised by an accommodation provider recently, as concerns about the growing number of cruise passengers landing in the county. In her quest for answers, Julie Rickards, owner of Stragona B&B in Tankerness, has compiled council figures and carried out surveys of local businesses. She has also gone over a 2017 report commissioned by the Orkney Island Council on how it should manage large-scale tourism. In response to her concerns, the council responded that the passenger limit was only ever a guideline. However, Orkney Island Council has confirmed that it is continually reviewing the situation, including a potential cruise liner booking policy that would serve to limit the number of large liners on any day. Yeah, I think there is a need to limit numbers. Other than the bus companies, I don't think other businesses will make much money from cruise passengers. I know when I did a river cruise in Europe for 15 days, I spent very little money. Kirkwall is not a big place, and it must be awful for the local people to have the town crowded with cruise passengers who are just looking round and wandering round. And on the internet today, I saw the buses lined up. I think there was about six or seven buses. Well, that's only going to take a few people off the um, cruise ships. 
Mm. Yeah, considering how many are on those ships. Yeah, yes. well, they can be over five thousand. Some of them are five thousand. Well, yeah. yes. I mean, Lerwick, you know, where Lerwick's yes. only small, and Kirkwall's not much bigger. Wasn't That's it? right. Well, look at Littleton. We yeah, have the exact, we're having the trouble we're having there, the exact Same problem. It does. The, this side, opposite end of the world. Mm. But the same See, they problem. don't. They don't really. I mean, I didn't spend money when I was in no. Europe. No, that's because everything is provided yeah, on the ship. Yeah, and I'm sure mm. a lot of those tourists don't spend much money. No. I mean, you don't go The occasional tea towel. Mm. Yeah, well, I bought a couple of bags and a jersey mm. and a blouse. That's all I bought. Mm. And, think... and a nice sort of biscuity thing. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we'd miss cruise ships, actually, if they no. just didn't bother coming <laughs> anywhere. Well, I presume <laughs> I presume they must pay the council, the Orkney Council. Yeah, they money. do, yeah. yeah. Yes. And the port. Mm. The port, mm. yeah. Mm. Mm. All right, this is a bit more fun. Stromness has just held their 75th annual shopping week. They seemed to have had a very interesting week with many forms of competitions and entertainment. Pavement artist competition for under five-year-olds, raft race, floral art display, display of boats and scarecrows were just some of the things organised. Yeah, they seemed to, they looked to have a great time actually. Yeah. Because, you know, if it's um, COVID, they haven't been able to hold it. Mm. Do you know what the name of the most northerly lighthouse in the UK is? It is Muckle Flugger, and it was built in 1864 by Thomas and David Stevenson on the northernmost tip of Unst. Building it was first considered in 1851, but due to difficulties in determining the exact site for the lighthouse, work did not start until 1854. It was during the Crimean War that the commissioners were urged by the government to erect a light at Muckleflugger with a view to the protection of Her Majesty's ships. A temporary light was established and was said to have been built in 26 days. It was first lit on the 11th of October 1854. As the 50-foot structure was on a rock 200 feet above sea level, it was thought that it would only have to withstand wind and rain. However, when the winter gales began to break over the rock, the sea not only broke heavily on the tower, but ran up the sides and burst open the door of the dwelling room. The principal keeper reported that 40 feet of the stone dike had been knocked down, six water casks carried away, and that they had not a dry part to sit down on, or even a dry bed to rest upon at night. That'd be scary, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Having wouldn't it all it? rush in the door. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at that height. But oh, it carries yes. on too. It's interesting, though, yeah. Mm. Orders to proceed with work on a new lighthouse were given in June 1855, and a 64-foot-high brick tower was built, with foundations sunk 10 feet into the rock. The permanent light appeared on the 1st of January 1858, the commissioner declined to reduce the thickness of the tower walls below three and a half feet thick or risk weakening the foundations by using local stone or rubble or reducing the depth of the foundations. But they agreed to have an iron pedestal in place of stone and reduce the size of the cornice. In spite of all possible economics or economies, Muckleflugger cost £32,000 a price in those days. Mm. Mm. Would be quite a bit, yeah. That that they built well has been proved over the succeeding years when the seas broke over the rocks for 21 hours continuously. The original tower still stands firm although serious erosion threatened the access path 
and weaker sections had to be bolted to a more solid rock. <laughs> yes, it really does stick out there, doesn't it? Oh, I don't think I'd like to walk out to it. <laughs> In 1968-69, a new dwelling block was built, replacing the primitive conditions where the light keepers slept in a crow's nest and ate in a cell. Don't ask me where they cooked. <laughs> there were three lighthouse keepers on the rock at any one time manning the station, spending one month on and one month off. Supplies and water used to be delivered by boat, which was a bit dicey at times due to the weather. Now things are delivered by helicopter, which is still affected by the weather. Muckle Flugger Lighthouse was automated in 1995, I think all lighthouses are automated now, which is a shame, as the keepers were tough and a special type of man being able to spend <laughs> spend that time in isolation. It certainly was an interesting way of life, but, uh, you know, the ones on land weren't too bad, but some of the ones were out in the middle of the sea and there was no, it was only a bit no. more. I mean, what would you yeah. do for a month? Yes. Yeah. You could meditate. <laughs> <laughs> How many books would you need to tuck under your arm? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, now for something different. Two gnomes, along with some plants and small stones, have unexpectedly appeared, filling a pothole in the Walsay Health Centre car park. Yes. That's what we should do with our (laughs) potholes in New Zealand. (laughs) That would be interesting. (laughs) Mm. A Walsay family of 10 siblings, all still living on the aisle with their spouses, have marked their longevity with a return to the site where their home used to be. The Williamson family, whose ages ages range from 71 to 88, grew up at Seaview in Marister. Their father lived to 102 and their mother to 101. The house originally had two bedrooms and no electricity or running water. I think it must have been a bit crowded at times. Gosh. (laughs) Wow. Or else she left home quickly. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) This article came up on Facebook recently, and some of you may have seen it. We have already mentioned before how the islands of Shetland need to have a permanent connection as it will make such a difference to the islanders' lives, as the Churchill barriers did in Orkney. This is what was said. We are on a mission to transform the transportation landscape foster inclusivity and drive sustainable development by connecting the islands of Unst and Yell to mainland Shetland through subsea tunnels in Yell Sound and Blue Mull Sound. Our campaign is driven by the spirit of community. Our vision is to work in collaboration with Shetland Island Council and other public bodies, businesses and residents to forge ahead with the development of financially sustainable low-carbon-emitting transport links. These links will not only bridge geographical divides, but also enhance the prosperity and well-being of our island communities. Why subsea tunnels? Connection by tunnel has the potential to breathe new life into the islands of Yell and Unst. These tunnels will provide greater accessibility, irrespective of weather conditions, eliminate geographical barriers, and open up endless possibilities for economic expansion and social integration. Additionally, this initiative will, in the long term, significantly reduce carbon emissions, promote environmental sustainability, and help to preserve the natural beauty of the islands. But we cannot embark on this journey without your support. The funds raised through this campaign 
will enable us to carry out vital geotechnical, socio-economic and environmental investigations, a crucial step towards assessing the geological conditions, social, economic and environmental impact and engineering feasibility of these tunnels. They will provide essential data and insights to move this vision forward. By contributing to our cause, you will be playing an important role in shaping the future of Unst, Yell and the entire Shetland community. Every donation, big or small, will take us a step closer to fostering economic growth and social well-being, preserving our environment and improving the quality of life for our islands. Your support will also send a powerful message to our local authority and national government, demonstrating the collective urgency and desire for positive change. It emphasises the need for investment in projects that will empower our communities, enabling them to thrive and prosper. We are very grateful for your contribution, which will help us to secure the necessary resources to conduct the investigations that take us one step closer to realising our vision. Join us in bringing this project to fruition. Together we can make a difference. They are hoping to raise the £50,000 before the 12th of September. We hope all goes to plan and it will not be too long before these tunnels are built. Yes, it's sort of a private enterprise and they're raising the money to do all this mm, work and then right. they can take it to the people who need to know. Because yeah. the case. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So I hope they get there. Get mm. there, yeah. This, this article came from the February 2013 Living Orkney magazine and brought to mind the storms and flooding they have had in the North Island here this year. The 1953 hurricane. As an Orkney Herald reporter fought his way down Bridge Street on the morning of Saturday the 31st of January 1953, another pedestrian remarked, This hurricane business is getting to be a habit. Less than three weeks earlier, the Home Service had broadcast a programme about the damage caused by the 1952 hurricane and how the islands had recovered. Now the gauges at the Met Office and Costa Head had gone to the end of the scale again. This time there was less damage to the island, though farmers again lost hen houses and stacks and the West Mainland Mart in Strumness was demolished. 1953 is mainly remembered for the damage to the Kirkwall seafront. In 1952, winds were very localised, almost confined to Orkney and Caithness, but the storm of 1953 moved on into the North Sea and caused one of the UK's worst natural disasters and wrought devastation to the Netherlands and Belgium. This was due to a storm surge, when low pressure leads to a terrible combination of strong winds and a very high tide. Overall, 1,600 kilometres of the British coastline was damaged and 30,000 people were evacuated. 307 people died, mainly in Lincolnshire, Suffolk and Essex. Thankfully, there were no deaths in Orkney, even though this storm struck when most people were already up and out. It only began to blow hard from the north at 8 o'clock, peaked at over 125 miles per hour by 9.15 and started to go down three hours later. The strong winds carried on through the afternoon and evening, 
with frequent gusts up to 100 miles per hour. Kathleen Leith had gone to Kirkwall on the bus to go to work, and she sheltered in the door of the town hall while waiting for the shop to open, when she saw a girl having to grab the Kirk Green railings as her feet were blown from under her, and she saw a tree being blown down in Palace Road. The Herald reporter on Broad Street also saw a tree going down in Palace Road, but greater drama was on Broad Street. Yeah, a 12-foot chimney stack on Tankiness House was rocking precariously. It was about to fall, and it was a toss-up on which way it would go. People came running out of the cosy cafe underneath. The stack went with its entire length falling almost gently sideways onto the roof. The top of the stack went over the roof ridge and crashed into the courtyard in a shower of bricks and dust. The main damage was to the seafront. In three hours up to just after high tide, the tremendous force of the seas first demolished the seawall along Eyre and Shore Street and then destroyed the roadway. The extent of the destruction was only seen when the tide receded. Shingle, rocks, lumps of concrete and tarmac lay heaped against the very front of the buildings. Doors and windows were smashed in the flooding. One of the few people who actually saw the disintegration was Mr Peter Bailey of Orkney Builders Limited. In the course of his duty, he went to see how work was progressing on the old man's shelter at the head of the West Pier. He arrived at 8.30am and later on found himself unable to leave. There he had to stay, marooned by the gale until after midday. He watched as three tremendous waves were responsible for the wall's destruction. He saw them strike and the wall disappeared in a smother of foam. When the water cleared a little, he saw that the wall was gone, which left the Air Hotel fully exposed to the force of the sea, which crashed against the hotel walls, hurling great boulders of broken dike and roadway against it. Several of the lower windows were smashed, allowing the sea to rush in. Nearly everything movable on Kirkwall Pier was swept away by the huge seas that swept over it. Five hundred sheets of asbestos sheeting disappeared. Piles of iron pipes were sent crashing and rolling over the quayside. Many articles of heavy gear and machinery vanished without a trace. It must have been a very frightening time. Yes, must, well, must have been. Yeah, they were considering it was a second. People weren't killed. I'd say. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mr. Peter Bailey must have been hanging on for dear life <laughs> to the shelter. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Poor man. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, once again, we have come to the end of our program. Cheerio until next month. Keep warm in the meantime. Mm. Or cool, as it may be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Depends where you are. Yeah. Mm. 